Thank you very much for reading that great passage. Um, really good to be with you. Um, I'm another Andy, and uh, we need God's help as we come to his word. So let me pray. Let's pray together as we come to this wonderful passage. Um, please, Lord God, would you open our eyes to reality, to the things that are really true, to the goodness of Christ and the awfulness of sin and the greatness of your good news. And please would you help us to, to get these things, to to grasp in some way these deep, powerful truths and to love them and to live them out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, shall we go on sinning? That's our question for today. Shall we go on sinning? Which might sound like a bit of a silly question, but there's a question behind that question, which is a really important one for all of us to face and deal with and, and, and grapple with, whether we're Christians and have been for a long time or just recently or whether we're investigating Christian things there's a really important question behind that question which is what is the connection between the gospel and godliness how do those things connect what's the connection between the good news of astounding abounding abiding grace and the Christian life what if there's no connection at all? What if actually they're two completely different things? What if the, the gospel is, it's not about what you've done, it's about what Christ has done for you. And then you become a Christian and it's actually is about what you do. And there's a hundred things to do before breakfast. And there's no kind of connection. And it's like, well, I'm not quite sure that I signed up for this. Or what if it's even worse than that? And there is a connection, but the connection flows that because you're completely forgiven and there's all grace, you don't need any godliness at all. It doesn't need to be godliness. Just stay as you are. Godliness doesn't matter. Can you, can you see how people might think that's their connection? You're forgiven everything, so it doesn't really matter how you live. Well, Paul knows that people will be thinking that. So he's just written chapter 5 of Romans, all about this, this wonderful, abounding, abiding, astounding grace. He's just been singing, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. And he knows some people, quite a lot of people, will make the next step. Therefore, actually maybe we can just sin as much as we want. Maybe it doesn't matter. Now, that sort of thinking is, is alive and well all over the place, around us and in us today. And three particular ways I think we see that around us at the moment. Um, one is as an accusation. I was talking to someone a while ago, and when I said, you know, the great thing for me about the gospel is that it's not for good people, it's actually for bad people like me. And it's, you know, you can actually be forgiven anything. And that's wonderful news. And, um, and, and this guy just muttered to himself, that's terrible. terrible. And I think what he meant was, if you're saying that a serial killer can be forgiven, that is immoral. That's actually a, uh, you know, I think there's, there's, there's quite a lot of people who will think, actually, you're just condoning and encouraging evil to continue. You're saying that evil doesn't matter and goodness doesn't count. And, and actually, you're, you're giving a license for evil. And I'm, I'm concerned about justice and goodness in the world. And actually, I think if that's what your God does, I think I'm actually more moral 
than God, because I actually care about justice, and I'm not going to just let evil off the hook. So sometimes it's an accusation against Christians. Sometimes you get it as a a positive affirmation within the church. From the early days of the church right up to today, there have been people who have said and made the grace of God into a license for sin. They said, well, God accepts you exactly as you are, so you can stay exactly as you are. He's very happy with you to stay as you are. He blesses you in what you're continuing to do. There's no need for repentance. There aren't rules any longer. It's just relationship. God loves you exactly as you are. That's it. Which sounds very attractive, doesn't it? It sounds like maybe that's true, but actually we'll see it's a very cruel, false teaching. But it's also present, and perhaps this is the one that um, most of us are going to have that temptation towards, as an attitude. There can be that attitude, and I I feel it in myself, um, where we say, we sign up to, we we believe that the Christian life does need to involve repentance and obedience. Um, We we say confession, we say we, we repent. But actually, in practice in the Christian life, when I sin, there's a little voice in my head that says, it's okay, because you're, you're forgiven. Don't worry about it too much. Or I hear a challenging sermon, and a little voice in my head says, yeah, it's okay, because actually it doesn't ultimately matter very much, because you're forgiven. And you can get to that place where we, we don't really expect anyone to change very much. don't really expect ourselves to change very much or anyone else to change very much. And we start to functionally live as if we can go on sinning and grace will increase. So what's the answer to that? Romans 6, that is the answer to that, Romans 6. Verse 2, by no means. By no means. There's there's a kind of a horror there, like, no, what? No, no, by no means. Why no? To put this in a nutshell, the answer is, why no? Because if we've really understood the gospel, we will see that it's the exact opposite of encouraging sin if we've gone deeply into the gospel then shall we go on sinning is a is a grotesque question to ask the gospel properly understood is complete opposite of a license to sin it runs in the other direction towards something good and beautiful so romans 6 is is plunging us deeper into the gospel and and there's there's heavyweight theology there you probably sense that as we're reading through that this is strong stuff so um, what we're going to ask now is that we imagine that we've just drunk a strong cup of coffee. Okay, I, I heard the other day that you can actually kind of trick your brain into thinking that you've drunk coffee. Have you heard that? Actually, you can, if you imagine now I'm drinking a really strong coffee, it does, it sort of sets off some of those kind of, you know, endorphins or whatever. I don't know what it is. But anyway, you could try that. Just imagine right now you're drinking a very strong cup of coffee and then we dive into this because there's six steps to the argument. They move quite quickly, but there's six steps to Paul's argument. And the first one is, you've been united with Christ. You've been united with the Christ. Verse 3, or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus? Baptism is a sign of a number of things, but one of the things it's a sign of is being united with Christ and sharing his identity. You know, when Jesus was baptised... There was the Father, the Son, the Spirit all kind of turned up. So that as he came out of the waters, the Spirit rested on him. And then the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my Son, whom I love. 
I'm well pleased with him. And when we're baptised, it's like we're being immersed into Jesus' identity. We're coming to share his identity. So the Spirit rests on us now. And the Father looks at us and says, This is my child, whom I love. With this one, I'm well pleased. We've come to share the identity of Jesus. So what is true of him can be said of us. He is righteous and holy. We can be said to be righteous and holy. He is the beloved of God. We can be said to be the beloved of the Father. Union with Christ, that's the the truth, the doctrine here. And you get it explicitly in verse 5. For if we have been united with him. This is just such a massively important idea to get around, get our heads around. Some of us might be familiar with it, some of us less so, but it's a big one in the New Testament. 180 times in the New Testament, it says, in Christ. We are in him. Jesus himself, on the night before he died, we're just thinking towards that period at the moment, aren't we? On the night before Jesus died, he told his disciples, on that day you will realize that you are in me and I am in you. Then he said again, remain in me as I also remain in you. There's a unity there's a few different Bible images for that. One of, the, one of them is the, the sort of tree and branches. So we're, we're like, like a branch in a tree. There are essentially just two trees. There are two trees. The Adam tree and the Christ tree. And we are branches, little twigs, in one of those trees. We all start in the Adam tree. So Adam tree is a tree that we start in. We're born into that as a little twig kind of sprouting off a branch. This great tree of humanity. And that tree is diseased at the roots. There's poison running through it. It's dead. It's dying. But there is another tree, the, the Christ tree, which is good and flourishing and fruitful and will last forever. And the great good news is that you can be cut off I don't know if anyone's a gardener here, but you you know that grafting thing? You can cut off a little twig from the Adam tree and you can graft it into the Christ tree and it can be one. So you start in Adam, sharing the the curse, the guilt, the poison of that tree, but you can be one with Christ, sharing his life and righteousness and fullness. Look at the last verse of chapter 6 of Romans Famous verse, isn't it? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the gospel is, I'm sure you've heard this, the gospel is the great exchange, isn't it? Who who deserves to be paid the wages of sin? We do. But Christ gets paid those wages. He gets the death. But we get what we don't deserve. We get the gift of God. So it's a great swap. And I think Maybe some of us are familiar with that, but less familiar with the idea of union with Christ. But that's how the swap works. The swap works because we are united with Christ. We actually have that, it says here, the eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He takes our sin, but we take his life because we are in him. We're baptized into Christ. So what is said of him can be said of us. 
And, and straight away, I mean, this is, it's got to have huge implications for how we think about the Christian life, isn't it? Because if we think that being a Christian is getting a, just getting a, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card, if, that, if that's all it is to be a Christian, so I know I'm not going to get punished one day, I've got this, you know, card, that, you know, that'll come in handy. I'll put that card in my back pocket and I'll carry on living my life exactly as I was, probably. But what if being a Christian is not just get out of jail free? What if it is getting Christ, having him, being united to him? That's a different kind of gospel, isn't it? And I don't know, all of you here, if, if there's someone here who hasn't got Christ yet, then that, if you're investigating what it is to be a Christian, this is what it is. God is offering Christ himself so you can have him now and be united to him forever and have eternal life in him. The next step of Paul's argument, though, he's saying, well, you've been united to Christ. What does that mean? So you have died with him. Verse 3, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. So baptism is a sign of union with Christ, and particularly... Paul wants, him to remind, wants to remind him that it's a sign of union with Christ in his death. When Jesus talked about his own death, he occasionally used that imagery of baptism as a way of talking about the cross, that he would, he would go into the waters of judgment, that he'd, be, he'd drown in the wrath of God. So when, we, when we're baptised, we, in a sense, go in and join him in his death. Verse 6, for we know that the old self was crucified with him. We were crucified with him. This is a really kind of weird thing, but there's, there's a sense in which, obviously, we weren't crucified with him. I mean, the good news is that we didn't bear the penalty for our own sin. When, when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified in our place, and we're actually, in one sense, more in the place of the mockers looking on. Praise God. But there's another sense in which we were hanging there with him. We were crucified with him because, because we're united with Christ now. We can be said to be united with his death. We were crucified with him. We were united to his death. And in that death, our old self dies. That's what it says in verse 6, doesn't it? We know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8 puts it really bluntly. Now, if we died with Christ. So if it wasn't enough to get our heads around that we're united with Christ, this is another thing to get our heads around, isn't it? You have died. If you've been united with Christ, you have died. The old you has died. It's had its funeral. So my old self has died. Who, what, what is my old self? My old self was born in North London in 1978. That's my old self. My old self was, was that, that twig on the Adam tree under curse and, and infected with that poison. My old self only deserved God's judgment. That old self, a death certificate has been written out for that. There's a death certificate on it with Andy Harker, place of birth, 19, you know, 1978. That, that guy who deserved 
the wrath of God, that sinner Andy Harker, has died. Legally pronounced dead. Now that's got lots of implications, isn't it? If you, if you, if you think you've actually died, if you, if you take in that truth that your old self has died, that's got loads of implications. For one thing, you don't need to fear death and judgment anymore, do you? Because you've gone through death and judgment in Christ. You've gone through death and judgment. That is not ahead of you anymore. Another thing is you don't need to defend yourself or justify yourself or please yourself because the old self, the old ego, has died. The implication that Paul particularly draws out here, and this is the next step of his argument, is because you've been united with Christ, because you've died to Christ, you've died to sin. You've died with Christ to sin. So verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. One of, one of the great things about having died is you've exited the dominion of sin, the slavery of sin. It's like there, there are two countries. There's Adam land and there's Christ land. Adam land is a terrible place. Adam land is this wasteland in permanent darkness where sin reigns and death reigns. And everyone in Adam land is, is enslaved to this horrible, cruel master. That's where we all start. We're all born into Adam land. And no one leaves that land alive. You, there's no way out. There's this high barbed wire fence. Or when it's like a concentration camp, maximum security, you're not getting out alive of Adam land. But there is a way out if you die in union with the death of Christ. Because Christ has exited Adam land. He was born into that land as a man as well, but he's exited that dominion of sin and death. And we can exit through his death. It's a bit like if you, you know, the Great Escape or Shawshank Redemption, you know, like Jesus has tunneled a way out and that's his death. And we get to go down that tunnel and get out through his death to freedom. So the next morning when they do the roll call in that, Adam Land concentration camp and they read out your name someone says he's dead, cross him off we're free we're outside, we're outside that barbed wire fence now and, and sin, that, that um, cruel concentration camp commandant, he no longer has any authority over us we've died to sin that's what Paul means. We've died to sin and we are free. We're outside. We're breathing that fresh air. We're free. And even better than that, next point in his argument is you've not only died to sin, you are alive in Christ. You're alive in him. Verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You know, the, the old illustration of, of union with Christ is, is uh, the bookmark is, is me, and, and this is Christ, 
I'm in Christ. So whatever happens to Christ happens to me. He's, he dies, I die. He's buried, I'm buried. He's raised, I'm raised with him. I have new life in him. Now there's, there's a future element to that. Uh, it says in verse 5, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we will be, that's a, a future thing, we will have a future resurrection because Christ did. But there's also a present element. We live a new life now. We have life now because Christ is risen. Just as Christ is raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So as we come to Easter, there's loads of wonderful, wonderful implications of Easter. But a couple of them are, one, it guarantees our resurrection on the last day. We will have a resurrection body like Jesus But also it guarantees you live now. We have life now because we're united with the risen Christ. So we've been issued with a death certificate, but at the same time you're issued with a birth certificate. You have new life. We've got this birth certificate which says date of birth, whenever you were converted, 2000 and whatever. Place of birth, Christland. Father, who's the father on your birth certificate? The Lord God Almighty. It's your father. We have a new identity in God's sight. We have a, we have a yes, yeah, we, we're still in the same body. You're still in the same body you, you were born in. We've still got the same memories. We've still got the same scars. But you are free from guilt. You have a new life. You have the Spirit resting on you. You have God the Father saying, I love this one. This is my beloved son, my beloved daughter. We have Christ. We have an incredibly bright future and we have an incredibly secure future. You know that's, that, that hymn we sing sometimes, one with himself, I cannot die. You're united to an indestructible life. So you have an indestructible life. And the, the particular implication that Paul draws out here is, this is the next step of his argument, you're alive to, in Christ or alive in him to God. What, what is this, this mode, the, the direction of this new life? To God. We have a new master. We're under new management. Like a shop or a business. Under new management. Verse 16. He uses this sort of master-slave language. Verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? For thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your obedience, your, your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And it, we might think, well, that's a bit funny. To, we're still using this language of slavery. But we do need to recognize there is no neutral spot in the universe. There's no neutral spot in the universe. As Bob Dylan sang, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. We naturally, we naturally tend to think that we're in control of sin. But that's a deception. Actually, 
Sin is in control of us. We think that we can stop whenever we want. But in Adam land, under the domain of sin, you can't stop whenever you like. And we see this, don't we, with all sorts of different sorts of sin. You know, think of, of gambling. Why do people rack up massive gambling debts? You think, surely you would have stopped at this or this. You can't stop. Sin pretends to be your servant, you know, offering you happiness on a plate. But actually, it's a drug dealer. And it's using you. And it's got you addicted. And you can't stop. When you're in Adam land, you can't see that. But when you're outside, looking back through the fence, you can see what a terrible slavery that is. And, and that's what Paul wants to remind them. Because like the, like the Israelites, when they got out of Egypt, they forgot how bad that slavery was. So that Paul is just reminding them, can you, can you look back? Do you remember how bad that was? Verse 19. You used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. He's saying, do you remember how you degraded yourselves? Do you remember how awful and degrading that was? Verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free, in a sense you were free, from the control of righteousness, from anything good. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now, you have a new master. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. So we, we've moved countries. We've, we've left the darkness and the degradation and the shame of Adamland and that cruel slavery of sin and we've been transferred into Christland which is a land of light and righteousness and life and fruitfulness, where there's a good master who is gentle and kind and only wants your good. And we live to him. He's our master now. So the last step, this is where it lands. This is the application of all of this. Last step. Um, so think and live that reality. So let's, let's read it from the top again. Verse six, uh, chapter 6, beginning uh, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it, in it, how can we live in it any longer? Do you, do you see how this kind of now makes sense? Is it, you know, why, would you, why would you stay there? You know, this is why it's such a terrible teaching to say you know, God affirms you're just staying in Adam now, why would you want people to stay in that horror and degradation of sin when there's, when there's a way out, when that Christ has come to take us out of there? You know, it's a terribly cruel message to say you've just got to stay there. Why would you want to live any, a second longer in that place? So what, is it, what does this mean? It's changing our thinking and our living verse 11 in the same way count yourselves dead to sin but alive to god in christ jesus recognize that is what you are there's this reality christian if you're a christian here the reality is you're united with christ you've died to sin you're alive in christ to god that is the reality you have a new master and just just reminding yourself of that is a really powerful thing no brave heart, William Wallace, final battle. 
He says to the guys there, you have come to fight as free men. He's telling them what they are. You are free men. What would you do with that freedom? That's what Paul's saying. You are free people. You are free. What are you going to do with that freedom? Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you're not under the law, but under grace. There's kind of military language here. We've changed sides in the battle. We were once fighting in the army of this terrible regime that spread evil and terror and darkness everywhere. But now we've been seized out of that army. We've changed sides and we're now part of this great mission to spread the knowledge of the glory of God to rescue people out of Adam land and to increase people's joy in Christ we're in that army now so live in that reality the, the old army commander might sort of shout across the lines and say like you know come 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 back and fight for me it's like no we've got a far better master now and a far better mission to be part of so we're to live that reality, to give all our energies and mind and body to that cause, to that master. And I don't know what that will mean for, for each of us here. Um, I love the example of John Stott, um, who's, who's gone to be with the Lord now. But John Stott, um, every morning, he would, as he woke up, he would lie in bed and he would greet the Father and the Son and the Spirit and then he would sort of lie there and offer himself, every part of his body, his whole self, to the Lord God for his service. It's a good thing to do, isn't it? Just lie there in bed. Yeah. Use me today. Let's pray that would be our attitude. Let's pray. Lord God, please, uh, please forgive me. Please forgive us when we have thought that sin doesn't really matter and we've turned your grace into license Please would you imprint on our minds these great realities of our union with your son, that we've died with him to sin, that we're alive in him to you. Please keep us from, from listening to the, the commands of our old master. Please would you help us to turn our shoulder on him and turn to you each day with all of the, the energy that, that your son now works in us. We pray this for your glory and for our good.